Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. All right, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Church of the Bay Area. Uh, it's a little unusual this Sunday. Typically, we are preaching through First Peter, and Roger, Pastor Roger's been doing that the last couple of months, and he will continue to do that even after this week. But whenever there is a fifth Sunday in the month, uh, we do try to take time to answer your questions about uh, just anything that may be around society, that, in the Bible, uh, because what happens is when we preach verse by verse, uh, word by word, um, it gets a little difficult to answer specific questions or talk about specific topics because we're basically going through the Bible. And so whenever there's a fifth Sunday in the month, uh, typically there's about four or five in the year, we try to take time so that we can answer your questions biblical, uh, biblically uh, when, when we have this opportunity. These questions all have been submitted. It gives Pastor Roger time so that he can answer and look up answers properly in the Bible. Uh, and we do that so that uh, we're not just getting his opinion. As uh, smart as he is uh, and as lovely as he is, we want to try to make sure he's not just giving his opinion, but he's actually taking things from the Bible. Um, so let's start with our very first question. And this is a good one. Why do we say amen to finish our prayers? Um, when you look at the scriptures, uh, for those of you who are familiar, you know that for the most part, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in uh, ancient Koine Greek. And both of those languages have a word that's translated amen. It's about 60 times we're going to find it in uh, all of scripture. And in both the Greek and Hebrew, they mean the same thing. They mean basically uh, verily or uh, truly or let it be so would probably be a good uh, a translation, especially as it relates to our prayers and how we use it. So when you see it in Scripture, it's basically a way for, for example, the uh, New Testament apostles to, to affirm what has just been said. Sometimes you see it in the Old Testament where the people of Israel say amen to affirm what Moses has just said or to affirm what has just been uh, said regarding the law or something like that. Um, in fact, in the Old Testament, about half of the times amen, the word amen is used, is all found in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And if you're familiar with that chapter, you know that there are various curses actually uh, being uh, laid out or pronounced against those who sin. So uh, they're explaining these these different curses. If this person does this, so may this curse be upon them. And the people say out loud as a group, they say amen. And so in that context, to give you an idea of why we use it today or how we use it today, they basically say, yes, so let it be. Very true. It's kind of like we agree with this. If we do this, God will curse us or punish us in this way. 
Um, in the New Testament, it's used very frequently at the end of epistles, but in connection with praising God or a blessing. Uh, you know, especially Paul, he likes to begin and end uh, his epistles with a personal note, and usually he'll he'll say some sort of prayer or a, or a hope, wishful blessing upon the people, and then he will say, Amen. Let it be so. May God do this. Or... If it's a praise of God, he's basically just affirming again, yes, this is true. This is true about God. Um, some examples would be Galatians, the beginning of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. says, uh, Paul says, Our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. Right? It's not that he doesn't believe it if he doesn't say amen, but you know how it is. When you're excited, when you're praising God, sometimes you just want to emphasize one more. This is, this is so true of God. So, may God have glory forevermore. Amen. Uh, in Revelation, you have the picture of these beings that are in heaven that John saw in his, in his vision, in his revelation. And there's over and over again, there's these proclamations of praises of God. And these beings keep saying, Amen, Amen, we agree, that is true. So right. You know, I'm trying to give you maybe some modern uh, vernacular that we would use, right? Fist bump, I don't know, whatever. Um, after a call for a blessing, Romans 15, verse 33, where, uh, where Paul says to the recipients of his epistle, he says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And so it's just, let it be. I just want to affirm that I want this to happen. So when we use it, right, it's kind of a declaration of affirmation. And the idea of ending our prayers is uh, with the word Amen. It's indicating that we affirm everything that we have just said to be true. So true in terms of if we've praised Him, we agree with this, this is true, right? Or if it's something that we've requested of the Lord, we're saying Amen, it is true, I really would like this, you know, for you to do this, provide this, save this person, or whatever it, it is. The reality is, why do we do it? Um, we're not commanded to end our prayers with amen. So a lot of it is just following the example of, uh, of the apostles in the early church. And a lot of it is simply just because of uh, Jewish, it started with the Jews, Jewish and Christian tradition. Okay? But I think when you recognize, and, and if you've been with the Q&A, a lot of these are very uh, theological questions. I, I try to end with something practical for each of these questions. Here's my, my practical for you. This is a good reminder that we have all over the New Testament that we need to be careful what we pray for. Right? Uh, don't be flippant. Don't, don't just ask for things that are clearly not in God's will. Right? And... Uh, well, I'm not talking about a specific will that is not revealed to us, but you know, you don't pray for sin, you don't pray for, you know, something sinful to be allowed in your life or something like that. So it is a good warning, and I think Amen has become. I was just talking to someone about this this morning or even this week. You know, a lot of times in the American culture, uh, when we're on the phone, we say bye, but we say I love you. And we don't really think about it. We don't, we're not gushing. We don't really mean it. Just something to say, okay, love you, bye. Right? And we're not really cognizant of that. And you could even say something. What did you just say to your mom? I said, bye. No, you said, I love you. Right? Because it's just something we say. 
We need to be careful when we're approaching the throne of God that even a word like amen, now, especially now that you know what it means, is not just something we say. Right? Can you look back at what you just prayed and really say, God, let this be so. Right? God, I affirm this by the blood of Christ and what I believe. Um, so that's, uh, that's basically what amen means and why we use it. And I think to... Uh... If you want to be conscious about it, if you end with let this be so or may it be, then it helps you think about what you're actually saying. Absolutely. Uh, question two, how do we as Christians view mental health? Um, very carefully. Okay, next question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I think in, in conservative circles, actually I shouldn't say that. Scratch that. In the church, there are two extremes that you see. Not that there isn't anyone in the middle of the road, or there are many people who haven't even thought about this, don't even care. Right? In the church, there are two extremes. Um, one of the extremes you will see more in conservative evangelicalism, which is to say that anything to do with psychology or psychiatry is considered sin and should be thrown out. Okay. On the other hand, the other extreme is in the church we have too great of a reliance on secular uh, therapists or secular psychology to the detriment of our spiritual lives because we're, we're getting life advice from someone who's been trained in a secular worldview rather than the scriptures. And I'll elaborate on that in a, in a moment. There are people with genuine, authentic mental health issues that need medication. Okay? If someone came for me for counseling, and it is clear to me, based on what they have said, and when I say clear to me, it's basically a sin issue, that they need to repent rather than take medication, I would never tell them to stop medication. That's just dangerous. Don't ever do that. Okay? That's, you're not a professional, you didn't prescribe it, you don't know what kind of physical reliance on that medication there is where stopping cold turkey can affect a lot of things, right? But even though there are people with genuine uh, medical, psychological issues that need medication, you will find that even in the field of psychiatric medicine, okay, the people with the training and the degree where they are legally allowed to prescribe medicine, even those people are now lamenting that people with lesser degrees and lesser training are diagnosing especially depression way too often. And, you know, there are people, you go to therapists, you are clinically depressed. You go to someone who can actually prescribe something, you are not clinically depressed. I'm not giving you medication. It's, so what I'm saying is, even non-Christian psychiatrists are saying we are over-diagnosing people with things like depression. This, and this is a problem because now there's, people are fighting within the same field, right? Psychologists and therapists and counselor versus certified psychiatrists. And this has become a problem, right? As Christians, we must see everything through the lens of Scripture, And when I say that, you understand that on the most fundamental level, and I'm not negating what I just said regarding there are people who need medication, okay? So don't misunderstand me here. 
On the most fundamental level, you understand, as a Christian, that the biggest problem you or any person in the world, Christian or not, has is sin. We have to start there. And we understand that for that problem, Christ is the only cure. Okay? Now you say, well, yeah, we we get that, but you wouldn't say that to a cancer patient. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say, oh, Christ is your cure and it's sin, you know, cancer is a result of, or, of the fall, which is true. No, I wouldn't say that. And so you can say, well, why would you say that regarding a psychiatric illness? Let me explain. As Americans, we are always looking for the quick and easy fix. This is a big problem that is causing a big, pro- big issues mentally and physically in our culture as well as politically. Okay, We don't diet and exercise and then we want our government to fix our bodies, which we broke. Okay, In the same way, we need to be aware when we are turning to drugs, prescription drugs, instead of biblical parenting or biblical obedience. Okay, Let me give you an example. Depression. Not all depression. But much of what people self-diagnose and say, I'm depressed, is caused by sin. It is selfishness. It is an extreme focus on self. When all you are concerned about is what you think you deserve and all you focus on is how people are not treating you the way you want to be treated, you're going to be sad. That's the result of selfishness. Unbeknownst to me, I had a roommate for two years in college. We went to the same very conservative church, Bible study, all of that. He never told me that he was depressed, suffering from depression. This was a self-diagnosis, I believe. And later on, it, it made sense why he was always in his room, why he slept so much, why he would fall asleep to heavy metal music. I mean, all this kind of stuff. He would just didn't want to be, he was depressed. He didn't want to interact with people. He finally opened up to our Bible study leader, who at the time was a, a seminary student. And my friend Kevin, I said, Kevin, what did Todd tell you? He said he basically confronted me on my pride. I said, what was the result? It's like I haven't suffered from depression since. Um, And so the first thing we need to do is look at sin, right? Again, I'm not discounting those. I know there are several people here that are taking medications for issues. These are genuine issues that you feel. But the reality is, if you are taking something, for example, for anxiety, you can't just rely on the medication. You need to see if, there's a, if there is a sin issue involved there. Is, it their fear, is there a fear of man that's paralyzing you? Is there a love of money? Is there a lack of trust in God? Okay? And this is not counsel we give people like, oh, take that medication. You don't trust God, you sinner. No. I mean, these are things that need to be graciously and very biblically a thought through and considered, right? Uh, back to the quick fix thing, right? Um, rather than being patient and teach our children, we can easily have them diagnose Papa Pill because they have ADHD. When the reality is, you maybe you just need to be a, a better parent, or maybe you need to understand that your kid is a genius and doesn't need to fit the status quo, that he's just bored in class, right? Instead of eating out so much, you need to save money to send them to a private school or whatever, right? I'm just saying we can't just 
default to medication as Christians and not understand there may be spiritual issues. And more often than not, there are spiritual issues. And even non-Christians would tell you that. They wouldn't say it's a spiritual issue, but they're like, there's just something you need to suck up. I'm not giving you a prescription for this. Okay? Um, I thought of this this morning as we were singing this song. We sang redeemed. This was our hymn. Listen to these songs. This is, this is, these, these are words clearly of a hymn writer who's bursting with praise, uh, has, has, has no, uh, no depression, no anger towards someone else, no vindictive spirit. Okay? Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. In other words, words cannot express how happy I am. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in His beauty the King in whose law I delight who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Fanny Crosby wrote this. One of the most prolific hymn writers was blind because of a doctor's mistake when she was born. No depression. No anger. No lawsuit. Just rejoicing in the Lord. You don't find that often today. You find bitterness, anxiety, anger, wanting revenge. And here's a woman just wrote and wrote these amazing hymns of praise and joy. Why? Because she was fully focused on Christ. And so I think we need to take care of our minds, but we need to be very careful. You see... The problem that many Christians have when they say I have a problem with secular psychologists or secular therapists is that their advice, which is proper advice according to their field and their training, is fundamentally the opposite of Scripture. They will tell you that you need to fix it. They will tell you that you need to realize that you're a good person. And what will I tell you as a biblical counselor? The whole point of the gospel is that you're a horrible person and that you can't fix it. That's the point of Christ. That's the point of the gospel. And so at the fundamental level, the very basis of what a secular psychologist or I as a biblical counselor would tell you is fundamentally opposing. You're a good person, you need to realize it. You're a horrible person, you need to realize it. You can pick yourself up and do better. No, you can't. You need Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's where you have people saying, you've got to be careful with seeing a secular um, therapist. We had a, a, a former member of our church who was seeing, uh, through her work and her insurance, was seeing a therapist and I, I shared and I just said, you know, you just need to be careful. And I explained to her just what I just said. And she's like, 
That's exactly what he tells me. He tries to lift my spirits by, by telling me how good I am and how I need to cut these people out because they're just a negative source. And then that is a lot easier than what I'm going to tell you, which is, no, you need to go forgive and you need to love them. Love them like you love yourself. Right? What would you rather do? Right? And then I can give you a pill that kind of stabilizes your emotions. And so we just need to be very careful um, with these things. We, we have um, one of my professors who was a biblical counselor and a, as a pastor um, within our circles is, is quite well known. Um, he was also, before he became a full-time pastor, was a pharmacist. And he keeps up with the classes so he can keep his license and even goes to Target or whatever and, and works for a day or whatever. And he brought in these, um, you know, those, those inserts for your medication. But he, he brought in the ones for like things like lithium and different things that they, they give psychiatric patients. And he says, you don't understand this. I understand this. This was my training. And basically for all of these drugs, what all this legal stuff is besides the warnings and stuff, they ultimately are saying we don't know how this works or why it's working. Whereas with an antibiotic, they're going to tell you, right? This is what's going on. And so, again, not to discount that, I've had friends who've gone on those things and were clearly having some some serious issues. Like I shared about one a few weeks ago, right, who was storming down the streets, leading the street gang all in the name of Jesus. I mean, it's crazy stuff, right? And so all I'm saying is I'm not saying throw it out. I'm saying be very discerning. Uh, be very careful, especially when secular advice and counsel sounds a lot more appealing to you than what Scripture is telling you. That's when you need to take a step back and say, uh, I need to be careful. And Pastor Roger, I'm glad you brought up that last point. Uh, how it is um, often couched or even um, even phrased to sound better is it's always in terms of like a disease. And so instead of saying someone might be an alcoholic, we don't want to blame the sinfulness or the tendency or the proclivity that's inside that person. But you see that, oh, I have disease of being addicted to alcohol. I have disease of being addicted to sex or or drugs or wherever it might be. We all might have a proclivity towards one particular sin, but that doesn't absolve us of taking responsibility of the actions that we have. And oftentimes you see a lot of people just hiding behind, I have no control of it. So I want a pill or I just want to call it something so I can't take responsibility uh, myself. Uh, The third question is this. uh, What is the moral state of those who have not reached the age of accountability uh, and die? And and just reading into this question, when when it mentions for those who have not reached the age of accountability, uh, the assumption is maybe children. Uh, I guess another assumption might be uh, maybe a developmentally disabled adult. And I don't know, maybe it even gets into someone who might be elderly and might have Alzheimer's. could be any one of those categories. Yeah, good. Um, just so you understand what the age of accountability is, the Bible is very clear that those who die without Christ uh, are instantly sent to eternal damnation. Okay? And so the question is, is what about a miscarriage? Because we, uh, we know that life begins at conception, Right? What about, uh, you know, a baby who's seven days old in the womb? Uh, what about a one-year-old who passes away or, or whatever 
that may be. And so the age of accountability is a reference to an age. Where it's not a set age in Scripture. Um, there's no, and it'll be different for for everyone, where they where the 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 individual has enough understanding to make a decision for or against Christ, which, of course, a one-year-old doesn't know he's a sinner, right? Uh, A baby still in the womb obviously doesn't know that. And so the question is, before they even have the cognitive ability to understand they're a sinner and accept Christ as Savior and they die, what happens to them? And the answer is they are instantly in the presence of God in heaven. The most common passage that we look to is 2 Samuel 12. A little bit of background. David, King David, sinned grossly with a woman called Bathsheba, right? And that's kind of what we kind of highlight. I don't want to go into that, but we kind of highlight his sin is adultery, but his sin was murder as well. So not be found out, he basically has her husband um, killed. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. With David's baby, uh, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he tells him, uh, because of your sin, uh, God is going to take the life of this, this child. Okay? So David starts mourning and he starts fasting, sackcloth and ashes we assume. He lays on the ground hoping that the child will not die. He hears some of his servants whispering and he's smart enough to realize the baby's died the child has died. They don't know how to tell me. This was promised by the Lord. David gets up, cleans himself up, stops mourning and changes his clothes. And his servants are like, what in the world? Why would you stop mourning now that your baby has died? And I'll read for you his response in 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 through 23. He, David, said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. But he will not return to me. Now David was someone who clearly understood there was a heaven and hell. And here he is saying, as a follower of God, of Yahweh who is going to heaven, I will see my baby again. Other passages that are used are from the words of Jesus, right? Holding a child. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Okay? And he says, unless we become like them, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Chris, you mentioned uh, the mentally handicapped. That would be something as well, right? Depending on, you know, they, they may reach that age of accountability later or maybe they never reach it. Um, and so that that would all apply. The details of which we don't know. Okay? Uh, we just have the conviction that Scripture is clear that babies uh, instantly uh, go to heaven before the age of accountability, which again, we don't know what age that is. It would be different for, for every person. Um, this does not uh, release us from the privilege as Christian parents to be sharing the gospel with our children from day one. Okay? It's not just the Sunday school teacher's job. It's our job. We need to be doing that. Here's something that's really cool, and I like to share this. Okay? 
So I don't know how it's going to work. We know there's no marriage in heaven. I don't think we're going to see our children and say, hey, you're my son. We're all just there together as brother and sisters. And if you know much about medicine and, and the nature of pregnancies, you know that uh, most uh, women uh, who are uh, married or who are having intercourse regularly have many, many miscarriages without even knowing it because just the baby's just a day old, whatever, the, the egg was just fertilized, and then they miscarried. They don't even know. They didn't even know they were pregnant. And so you ladies are going to get to heaven and potentially meet dozens of your children that you didn't even know existed. That just that blows my mind. I think that's really cool. Question number four, uh, and this is in regards to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, which I'll just read really quickly. Uh, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when, the gen- for when Gentiles who do have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternate- alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And so here's a question. <laughs> What about the native in the jungle who doesn't hear the gospel? Will his conscience defend him unto salvation? Okay. So this is, um, this is the classic question, right, regarding... Actually, this is usually a follow-up to the question we just had regarding uh, babies who die without Christ. Right? Well, what about the native in the jungle? And I think we don't... We don't like to say, well, what about my coworker who's never heard the gospel? Because you know the answer is going to be like, uh, why has he never heard the gospel if he's your coworker, right? So we talk about the native of the jungle, and there's, there's even more, you know, uh, there's even more seemingly like excuse for them because they've never even been exposed to that, right? Well, praise God that missionary work has gotten to the point where I don't think there's many, if any, unreached people groups anymore. They've all, at some point, been exposed uh, to the to the gospel. But still, there was a time when when they weren't, especially before modern technology and planes and and motors and things like that. Right? The Bible is very clear. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the only way. And so, if a native has never heard of Jesus Christ, he cannot profess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so, there is nothing to save him. Okay? Now, the question asks about his conscience, right? So, you go before God... And his conscience is clear because based on what he has done, um, he's, he's been a morally good person. So would that get them into heaven? No, because then that's a salvation of works. Right? And there's no amount of works that could, could get you into heaven. And I think the clearest passage that talks about the conscience and how God has given us a conscience is in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 to 32. In fact, it'd be great if you could turn there. Romans chapter 1, 
verses 16 through 32, and kind of the, the ending or the, the result that's given to you right off the bat in verse 16. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous of, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. In other words, well, let's read on. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. And it goes on to talk about the sins that God gave them over for. And the idea there is like they kept suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth. They wanted their sinful lifestyle. And God basically said, fine, I'll give you what you want. Have at it. But they're going to face the results of that as well. What that passage is saying earlier is that everyone knows there is a God. Right? Wow. Their consciences and through clearly God's power is seen. And to look at nature, to look at our consciences that no matter where you go, people have a sense of right and wrong. Maybe some of those things they do in their tribe or in their culture we may consider wrong or evil, but they have an understanding of right and wrong. Right? That's got to come from somewhere. It's it's the whole creation demands a creator argument. Right? And the only way you can look at creation, right, to see this dry little thing turn into a tree like that, and then the tree drops more of these dry little things, seeds that will become, you know, all of that, right? Just the whole process of that. The birds eat fruit, right? And they poop out the seeds. Instantly fertilize seeds. I mean, this is God's gross, I know. But God's plan, This, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And the only way you can, you can convince yourself that there is not some higher being that did this is you have to suppress the truth. I mean, you ask any atheist, why are you an atheist? And they have a rationale for that. It's not just natural. They have to think through it and have a reason and convince themselves that there is no God. Okay? That's the active suppressing of the truth. Now, they're not going to know by looking at a tree that there was a God-man who was born of a virgin who died on a cross. Right? They're just going to know there's a higher power. And... What this passage says in verse uh, in 16, or verse 18, rather, is that that is enough to condemn them. In fact, they will be condemned. The wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against them because... So will their consciences uh, in front of God, if they die without Christ, defend them? No, it will accuse them. It will accuse them. So, we also see from the early church that those who did not suppress the truth and desire to know who this God is, God sends someone to them. Right? Infamous Cornelius. Right? In Acts 10. The Ethiopian in Acts 8. Alright? 
also when you look at big picture, what we're also talking about, when you look at Romans 1, you're looking at historically that mankind started suppressing the truth. They gave up, you know, gave up their relation, men gave up the relations with women for man for man and things like that. It goes on to say those types of things. You look that there was a point in time where everyone on earth knew God and knew of God. Okay, so when we're looking at the scope of from Adam and Eve, right, everyone knew God and it was as history went and as people scattered, they started suppressing the truth. And you see this. You see people, exactly what we read in Romans 1. They have a version of their God, right? Exchanging the true God for idols, for statues, for something. Okay, and so again, let me give you something practical. Share the gospel, support missionaries. It's very simple. Great. Number five. How do we know when it is appropriate to speak out when we see Christians suffering at the hands of their employers as to their authority? Okay. Um, I got this question submitted right after I preached from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 19. I'll read that to you as a refresher. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. The context of this was the Roman slave, right, who could be beaten for no good reason and could even be physically beaten or even sexually abused for doing good, for doing Christian things if the master didn't like what they were doing. And what Peter is telling these slaves to do, and, and we took the application to those of us who have employers, right, to, to submit to our bosses, um, is that when you are getting beaten, to not seek vengeance, to not sin in anger, uh, but actually to be submissive to your masters with all respect. Okay? Understand that this was a situation where the servant had no other choice. So, this is not saying get beaten, Christian, by your boss or get abused by your boss and do nothing about it. Right? It's saying don't sin and still submit to them. Don't plot vengeance. Don't go back and you know slit your slave owner's throat in the middle of the night. Uh, don't don't break the law by running away. Right? Or in the workplace, don't start gossiping about your boss. Don't, don't start undermining his authority, things like that. You can go to HR. You can walk away. You can call the police if they get physical. So this verse is not saying don't do anything about it. It's addressing the attitude. So the question is, when you see a Christian uh, being, being you know, treated poorly by their boss... Uh, when do you get involved? Always. Always. So again, this passage is not saying, oh, Christians, you deserve it. Just smile, grin, and bear it. And Christians, stay back. Don't do anything about it. We still stop, right? We still block the punches. We still push them away. We still call the manager, whatever it is. And so you can suffer with the right attitude and still take the proper and acceptable actions to alleviate the suffering, but never with a vindictive heart, never vengeance, never hating, never sinning against uh, the other individual. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. 
Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. We are to take care of people in those situations. Great, that's a great example. Uh, number six, uh, what is the biblical way to view IVF that's in vitro ver- fertilization? Uh, freezing of eggs, which has, I guess, been more common lately, and also other medical inter- interventions uh, for birth. Okay. I'm going to mainly address IVF, in vitro fertilization, and I think the principles will apply to, can be applied to other uh, medical interventions. So in vitro fertilization, if you're not familiar, is usually if uh, a couple is having trouble getting pregnant, what they'll do is they will fertilize the egg uh, medically, scientifically, outside of the womb, and once the egg is fertilized, they will put it back in the womb. This used to be called test two babies. That actually used to be the official name. Uh, the first one was in the late 70s, and they just called it uh, a test two baby. Later they gave it a more... Uh, palatable name in vitro fertilization. Um, here's the, pr- the main principle you need to understand underlying all of this, which we've, I've mentioned earlier, is that the Bible says life begins at conception. Okay? So before you even know you're pregnant, at the moment the egg is fertilized, that is a human life. Okay? Th- this is, if you don't understand why Christians are against abortion, this is why. Right? Not six months, not five months, one second. Okay? One millisecond at the moment of fertilization, God says that is a life. That is a human being. Okay? So, that's what the Bible says. The Bible, and this is going to sound funny, but again, in biblical times, this wasn't even an option, right? 1978 was when this was happened. The Bible doesn't say, give any instruction about where the egg needs to be fertilized. Okay? Um, It doesn't even say that the egg needs to be fertilized during intercourse. Right? We know pregnancies happen like that, right? They're not having intercourse, it's after whatever, and we'll go into details, you get it. Okay? Here's the problem with IVF that you need to be aware of if you're pursuing that. In order for, doctors will tell you, in order to, because it's not a guarantee, right? Take one egg, take some sperm, fertilize it, and you're done. They want to increase your chances of having a baby, so they will fertilize as many eggs as possible. Those are human beings in God's eyes. Those are babies. Now, there are actually a lot of practical reasons for that. Because of the procedures and the medication needed each time things are harvested, it is actually more economical to harvest multiple eggs at a time and subsequently uh, fertilize them because it costs about the same to do 10 as it does 1. Okay? And that's something they'll tell you. Obviously, you increase your chances. Right? Fertilize 10 eggs, you increase your chances of having one go full, full term. It also... Uh, they'll tell you, and this is true, you won't be exposed. These medications we need to give you are toxic. And so if we can harvest 10 at a time, then you will, you know, ma'am, you're going to be exposed only once to these toxic medications and not multiple times. Right? So if this doesn't work, we're going to have to give you the medication again. Um, 
when you have that many fertilized eggs, they're going to destroy some of those. The Bible calls that murder. That is the danger um, that you can avoid that. I mean, I'm not saying don't do IVF, right? You just got to tell your doctor, no, we want one. Take one and fertilize one, okay? Because you fertilize others. And then they say, well, there's the option of freezing, and now there's this thing where you can, you can adopt a fertilized egg, you can adopt an embryo. But because so many people have pursued IVF and have had a baby and they're freezing their other uh, embryos, there are probably a million there. And so we have, at a very fast rate, if adoption of these embryos happen at a very fast rate, we have decades of adoptions before we run out. So that, that's not a very good argument either, that you will just, you know, someone will adopt them. Because after a certain time, they're just going to destroy them. Okay? Um, there are other gray areas about if we say that, say that's life, that's a human being, uh, to cryogenically freeze them, to pause their life, there's other potential moral issues there as well. Okay? On the flip side, having babies glorifies God. And to overcome infertility so that you can have a baby glorifies God. Another issue to think about is that medicine, for the most part, is a huge blessing and tool of the Lord. I mean, this is, I mean, think about it, right? I mean, we, it's amazing to live in a time, I mean, sure, there's a lot of diseases we hope they'll find a cure for, but we're living in a pretty amazing time right now. And that's a gift uh, from the Lord, okay? And morally good for the most part. So, um, those are some principles to think about uh, if you're if you're pursuing IVF, freezing eggs, or other things. You need to just start with those basics and be very aware of what uh, the doctors may be trying to encourage you to do. Great, thank you. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Um, how should you approach non-believers to help them, especially atheists and those who criticize the Lord? There's only one way, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14 says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, in other words, just a normal human being who doesn't have Christ, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So you can argue, you can explain, you can try to convince them there is a God, that Jesus existed, but with the Spirit, they're not going to understand. How do they get the Spirit and understanding? Accepting Christ. How they accept Christ? The gospel. It's the gospel. That's the only way you're going to do anything or change anything. Um, you know, I have a saying, and many of you have heard before, you cannot debate someone into heaven. 
You can convince him maybe on a moral level and on a political level why our views of certain things are right. That doesn't save him. You can stand outside of an abortion clinic, convince that girl, that girl to have that baby. You've just saved a life, but they're still going to hell without Christ. Okay? That, that doesn't save them. Um, arguing about where was God on 9-11 or homosexuality or when does life begin. Even if they agree with you on a political or moral level, that doesn't save them and it, it doesn't help. We, you want to help an unbeliever, it's through the gospel. Right? And this is why there's this movement to change our culture on a moral level. It's very dangerous. These people are depraved. They have depraved minds. Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. They're a slave to sin. The only freedom from that slavery is Jesus Christ. Now, if they're doing things that bother you, there's no harm in saying, hey, I think, you know, you know I'm a Christian. Would you mind not swearing like that with, with God's name so much? It just kind of bothers me. That's fine. You know, just to make your workplace or whatever more comfortable. But again... That's their nature. That's who they are. Um, nothing will change without the gospel. In fact, to try to change people on a moral level without the gospel, in other words, without changing the heart, which we cannot do, only God can do that, and it's through the gospel. Okay? You guys seeing a theme here? To only try to change people externally on a moral level, all you're doing is making them a legalist, and all you're doing is making yourself a Pharisee. In all of Scripture, there is only one group of people who are actively trying to change society morally for the better without the gospel through behavior, and that was the Pharisees. That's it. Jesus doesn't do it. The church didn't do it. It's a gospel. Evangelize. The gospel of evangelize. That is it. Right? Well, and they say, well, what about this? What about this? And what about... Can I first tell you, this is how you do it on a practical way. I'll get to that, and in your mind you're like, you're not going to get it anyways. You're just setting up a debate and an argument. Can I at least tell you where I'm coming from? So when I tell you my views on these things, you will understand where I'm coming from. And then you share the gospel. There's a famous uh, professor. Um, You've probably read some of his books. Right? I don't, actually, I don't know if he's still alive, but he would, he would go and he'd, you know, when he was in college, he would go and knock on people's doors and he'd just share the gospel. And he shares this, this story of one guy who's like, I can't believe the Bible. Right? And it's one of those things he knew people just say that just to get you to be quiet. And he said, well, what, what, tell me, what don't you believe about it? And he's like, well, you know, like, uh, isn't there that guy, Jonah, right? He lived in the belly of a, of, a, of a whale, a big fish, for three days and three nights. That you see, right there, that just shows you that the Bible is not true. It's fiction. It's just stories. right? So this guy went and he started research. This is before the internet. He goes to the library. He's researching, 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 taking hours, which would take us three seconds right now on Google. right? He's researching. Aha! Japanese fisherman fell overboard. right? Several days later, Another fisherman boat caught this whale, cut it open. There he is, alive, stinky and pretty gross, living off of, you know, bile-infested sashimi, basically, in the belly of the whale, right? But alive. Runs back to that. Knock, knock, knock. Boom, boom. See, look, it's happened. It's happened in recent history. Oh, yeah. Huh. I guess you're right. Okay, still don't believe in Jesus. Bye-bye. 
It's got to be the gospel. Right? You can prove to them that historically everything else in the scripture is accurate. Uh, one, years ago, I don't know if he's retired yet, one of the top historians of ancient history, biblical times, based on his research, believed not only was Jesus alive in a person, which many historians and architects believe, he believed that he was the Son of God and was raised from the dead, but will not give his life to him. Even the demons believe, right? They know. They're there. They've been trying to thwart it this whole time. It's only by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can any of this make sense. So you want to help an atheist? You want to help anyone? Share the gospel and let God do His work. I'm sorry? Uh, I don't know if he has. What I've told you is all I know about him. (laughs) Thanks. There's one caveat to that. You have to know the gospel, right? So you have to take the time to know when you say God is holy, where does it say that? When you say mankind is sinful, where does it say that? When it says that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins and takes our place, where does it say that? Those are the basic things that we ourselves should know that we should recite to ourselves every day so that when someone actually asks us or when we have the opportunity, which we always do, we want to be able to present that clearly and we want to present that well. And I I believe that that will strike the sword and spirit of people's souls. Yeah. And I would add add to your addition, on a practical level, I think a lot of times we say like, well, I don't know the gospel well enough to share it. What Chris is talking about, like we need to defend it from the scriptures. But if you're a Christian, you know the gospel because that's how you were saved. You don't have to be extremely eloquent. Again, you're not, you're not convincing them. God's going to change the heart. So yeah, there's people who are professional evangelism. They're gifted in evangelism. Or even some people in this church are like, wow, you're, just, wow, you're so good at it. You're warm with people. I get clammy hands. I'm sweating. I'm crying. And I, oh, Jesus died for you. you know, it takes you an hour just to say Jesus died for your sins. But if they hear the gospel, it's enough for them to be saved. There's no, no, no call to be eloquent, but you've got to know what it is they need to believe to, to be saved. Okay? And you know it because you're saved. Uh, and I'll just say this. I mean, and maybe you found this from your own personal experience. There's nothing that drives you more to want to know your Bible. There's nothing more that drives you more to want to know the verses is when you actually share the gospel or you even have to defend your faith. You're obviously not going to argue with somebody about it, but... I'm sure most of you who have tried to talk about God's word or even have to try to uh, even defend it in some way, it's driven you're like, oh, you know what, where does it actually say it? And it's exciting for you to do that. And so it, it is an encouragement in, in that aspect. And I'll just, I'll just close with this. Um, Chris, you're looking really sharp today. I really like that outfit. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let me close this in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for curiosity. We give you thanks for freedom. And we give you thanks, Lord, for the opportunity in which we can come and, and understand that your word, even for the most modern day and applicable type of uh, issues that we face, that your word is applicable, that we can come to seek it, that we have uh, leaders who seek to know uh, what the Bible says about that. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be curious, we would continue to have that uh, 
that strength, that boldness to be able to stand up for your word uh, and that we would seek uh, always your truth and that we would seek what your word says. Uh, and these things we pray, may this be true.